Hey, good morning again. Oh, I've got to find my wire here. Well, again, it's good to be worshiping with you together again. Um, as you've guessed, we're going to be in Hebrews 2. You know, this is the, uh, the end of me. This will be the final um, Sunday for me in our little mini-series through Hebrews. Lord willing, I'll be back up again at the end of July, but um, thanks for bearing with me and actually coming back after, uh, after the last couple of weeks. Um, we'll be uh, finishing up chapter 2 today. So the word of the Lord comes to us from Hebrews chapter 2, which is verses 14 through 18. This is God's word for God's people. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father, we sit before you to listen to your word, to listen to what you have to say to us and what your spirit will apply to our hearts. We're not here to listen to the opinions or conjectures of a, of a broken and sinful man. So I pray, God, that as your word says, that the things that you have to tell us would not return void, but you would open blind eyes and make dead hearts alive. Lord, we all come to you with sin. We all come to you guilty. But we know, Lord, that through Jesus Christ that our, our guilt is cleansed and that Jesus paid the price for us and so that we have forgiveness. So we pray, Lord, that you would cause us to live by the Spirit. You would cause us to say no to sin and to say yes to you. And in that, Lord, we pray that we would listen to what you have to tell us today. We pray this in the name of King Jesus. Amen. Help. You know I need somebody. Help. Not just anybody. Help. You know I need someone. <laughs> Everybody knows it. In fact, uh, Jerry Haskins says he's going to volunteer to sing it for us a cappella at the end of the service today. He says no. Change your mind. I want my money back then. Well, I'm sure that most everybody in this room knows where these words come from. They're one of the many big hits of the Beatles. And it actually came out 58 years ago, if you want to feel, if you remember it, you're old. Um, sorry. These uh, lyrics are from the song Help, of course. And they were written by a young man who was merely giving voice to a truth which anyone with some sense knows to be true. You know, it's kind of an upbeat pop song, but it was truly a cry for help from this guy. He had a lot, of, a lot of pain in his life, and he wrote these lyrics down. They even made this little movie about it, which was kind of silly, but it kind of overlooks what was really behind it all. This is a guy with a cry for help, and, and we know that we also need help. We need help, and not from just anybody, but we need somebody. I'm sure that most everyone in this room knows where these words come from, I'm sure that for some of you, this song will be stuck in your head for the rest of the day. And I'm sure that all of us can or have been able to relate to this cry for help that is expressed in this song. But what is it that we really need help with? And who actually is able to help us? And where does our help come from? 
What we need help with actually depends on the need. Um, you don't go to the mechanic if you need help with appendicitis, because that wouldn't address the need. You go to a doctor, and we need surgery, not just an oil change, although maybe I need an oil change as well. Who is able to help us depends on who is qualified to actually address the need. We don't get medical attention or surgery from somebody who downloaded their degree from the internet. He's not qualified to perform the operation. He cannot address the need because he's not qualified. Where our help comes from depends on what our need is, whether the helper is qualified to address the need, and whether the helper is willing to help. Is the qualified specialist who can address our need both willing and able to come to help? You know, a few months ago, um, we had a, a sponge get accidentally sent down the toilet, which caused a blockage. And we only have one bathroom, so the situation became dire. Um, we called around to several plumbers, and one of them said they wouldn't help us because we're renters. Another company said that they're busy, but they can come in a couple of months, which seems to me like a long time to be using the bucket. And you see, there was a need. There was a non-functioning toilet. There was a qualified helper, the plumbers, but there wasn't a real willingness to help in our desperate need. And eventually, there, there was a plumber who came, spent five minutes fixing the problem, and he charged 200 bucks, which is a pretty good day's work, if you ask me. That's $2,400 an hour. I mean, I could get a van and just one of those fancy machines and just do this all day long. He even offered the sponge back, which I thought was generous of him. But uh, Marina said we couldn't use it on the dishes anymore, so I let him keep it. As fallen and sinful human beings, we have desperate needs. And we all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and the wages of sin is death. The paycheck you've earned for your sin is death. And we need a qualified helper, one who can save us from our sin, and we need somebody who is willing to come and help us in our desperate need. In our passage last week, we went through the desperate plight of fallen humanity and the death debt that every human being owes because of his sin. And we also spent time understanding how the Lord Jesus Christ, as the God-man, as the truly human, truly God, suffering servant, was and is the only one qualified to represent humanity and save humanity from God's wrath. Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. And his name is the only name under heaven given among men by which we can be saved because he's the only one who is truly God and truly human and the only one who lived a perfect life sinless life of obedience and faith in, God, uh, faith in God, dying for his church in our place, on a cross, in order to redeem a people for himself. In today's passage, the theme of Christ's humanity in the book of Hebrews continues. But in this section, we're going to see more on what it means for Christ to be human and the office or role that he's able to fill as the God-man, the Theanthropos. Our passage today teaches us how Jesus Christ is our helper. He is the one who is able to address our need. He is qualified to address our need, as we covered last week, and he is willing to address our need. And praise God for that. So in other words, from verses 5 to 13 in Hebrews 2, there was an emphasis by the author of Hebrews to show us that Jesus Christ is human, and uh, what he accomplished salvifically. 
in verses 5 to 9, that, that showed us that Christ is fulfilling the purpose of humanity in being lords and stewards of the earth. These verses also showed us that Christ is the one who, through suffering and death, has been crowned with glory and honor. In verses 10 through 13, which we looked at last week, we were shown that Jesus Christ, as a true human being, had to suffer and die in order to redeem a people for himself. In order to bring many sons to glory, the Christ had to suffer, to die, and rise again on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. We also saw in verses 10 through 13 that since Jesus Christ became human and redeemed us, he's not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters, and we, as Christians, are true spiritual siblings in a true spiritual family with real ramifications on how we are to love each other, care for each other, worship God together, and engage the unbelieving world together as Christ's ambassadors to a dying world. Now, with this passage before us this morning, the argument or the theme of Christ's humanity continues uh, along with its significance for us as his followers. And the core of this passage is that the Lord Jesus Christ, our King, our Master, our Brother, is also our Helper. And at this point, we need to rewind the tape a little bit. And actually, just saying rewind the tape and referencing the Beatles ages me a little bit. I'm still technically a millennial, but I'm still the generation that still had phones stuck to the wall and things like that. So I say rewind the tape. We need to rewind a little bit, and we need to emphasize an important truth here. Our God is a God who helps. And I think this is something that we as Christians intuitively believe as followers of Christ. I mean, we wouldn't pray if we didn't believe that God helps. Yet even though we believe this, even though we will make an intellectual assent to this truth, I don't think we often emphasize this as much as we should or, or make it a point of praise, of praise as often as we should. I also think that for many of us, we do believe that God helps, but we don't feel like he always helps or that he's always willing to help or even always wants to help. If in your prayers you feel that you have to soften God up with some praise before you get to your need, if in your prayer you feel that you haven't done enough good things during the week in order for God to answer your prayer, if you have this line of thought, then you don't actually believe that God is always willing to help you. You believe that he's got to be coaxed, just like people in your own life. You know, if you want to ask your parents for something when you're a kid, you got to you know, vacuum the floor or do something nice before they'll say yes to you. We are uh, ascribing to God um, things which aren't actually part of his character. We treat him like maybe he's the plumber who refuses to help us, or the one who says he's too busy for your problems right now. I mean, don't you think that God's too busy with what's going on in Ukraine or in Sudan or the rest of the world to think about your, your little problem coming up? Is this, the, is this the mindset that we have on God? I mean, we will call the plumber because we believe he can help, but when we call uh, any, any specialist, we don't always know that they're going to be willing or able to do that. They, they might be busy. Then you try to schedule car repair in our community, you're, they're going to schedule you two months out. They just don't, aren't able to meet your need in the immediate. So do we feel this way toward God? And do we pray to him because we believe he can help, but we don't always believe that he's willing? Well, let me remind you now, with the authority of God's word, that our God is a God who helps. 
And here are several Old Testament passages speaking of God's helping us. Isaiah 50, verse 7, For the Lord God helps me, therefore I am not disgraced. Isaiah 50, verse 9, Behold, the Lord God helps me, who is he who condemns me? Psalm 54, 4, Behold, God is my helper, the Lord is the sustainer of my soul. Psalm 27, 9, You have been my help. Psalm 63, 7, For you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I sing for joy. Psalm 86, 17, Because you, O Lord, have helped me and comforted me. Psalm 118, verse 13, But the Lord helped me. Psalm 121, verse 3, My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. Psalm 40, verse 17, You are my deliverer, my help and my deliverer, O Lord, do not delay. Psalm 42, 5, Hope in God, for I shall again praise him for the help of his presence. These were just 10 verses. I, I stopped at 10, there were more. It was just a small sampling of passages which speak to God's help to his people. And there are many, many more. This is, a, this is a big topic in Scripture about how God comes to the aid of his people. So what's the point? The point in emphasizing that God, in his posture and actions towards Old Testament people, that he helps, assists, and aids them, is to show us now, in 21st century Port Townsend, as we study the book of Hebrews, that God's help is part of who he is. God's help or love in action, is a necessary corollary of God's character. God's love is love in action, not merely love in feeling or attitude, which, which it also is. God's love just isn't, it just isn't good vibes that he's sending your way. He works on our behalf. His love is action. We can often be really grateful for well-wishers, and we should be, but sometimes we really need well, doers, and our God is a doer. John 4, 8, first, excuse me, 1 John 4, 8 says that God is love. God is love. And you've heard that phrase many times all over the place, and it's true. Um, Sir Lewis Hamilton, the seven-time Formula One world champion, has God is love tattooed on his neck. I don't believe he's a, he's a Christian, but this is a truth that we see everywhere, even on a race car driver's neck. God is love. And it is a true statement. It's what the scriptures say about God. And since he is love, he acts in love because he acts in accordance with his nature. And things that God does, or things that God is, is how he's going to act. So again, though, what's the point? What's the significance of this in relation both to this passage in Hebrews and to our lives? Well, what have we been talking about over the last two weeks, if you've been here? What have we learned about the man, Jesus of Nazareth, from our previous two passages in Hebrews? It's this. God's help isn't merely shown in some emotional way, like making you feel confident in a hard situation or giving you peace with a disturbing medical diagnosis. God does do those things, and praise God for it. But these emotional blessings aren't nearly the whole picture. I think it would be great, you know, if you had to... Uh, just a, a God that would just make you feel great when you were feeling down. That's a good thing, too. But that's not enough for the things that we actually need. It's not enough for the crises that we really face. God does help in our day-to-day. But in Christ Jesus, we witness God himself entering into our world as a human being and helping people in ways that we need help the most. Now, Tim Keller has this book called uh, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering, 
And I've read a, a number of books on the subject, and this is kind of, what I think, the best one if you're interested in um, studying the subject. But he says, you know, there's a lot of pain in the world, a lot of bad things in the world, but one thing you can't say is that God doesn't care about it because he himself entered into it and experienced it in Jesus Christ. He bore it. He, was, he experienced the things that we suffer in this world. Jesus of Nazareth came to earth and he showed true compassion for the needs and the hurts of the people around him. His primary mission in coming wasn't just to heal people and to feed us with fish and loaves, but he did those things because he cares. I, I love the passage in Luke 7 when Jesus enters this town called Nain, and as he's walking in, there's this funeral procession coming out. There's a young man being carried out for burial, and the text says that this man was the only son of a widow. So this is a single mom whose only son has just died, and she's carrying him out to bury him. And in this time of history, this means that she would have no one to care for her now, and it would be hard at the least to survive. And Luke writes that when Jesus saw her, he had compassion on her, and he raised her son from the dead. He gave her boy back to her. That wasn't part of his big mission that he was doing. And he walks into this town, and he sees this horrible scene, and it says, when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her, and he raised her son. And why did he do that? Why did he help her? Because he had compassion. Because he is a compassionate God. In his compassion, out of his abundant love and care, Jesus Christ didn't just heal the sick and raise the dead. He came to suffer and to die for all who would believe in him. He came to help us with our most desperate and urgent need. We need help. And like the song lyrics I quoted earlier, we don't need just anybody. We need help, but what we need help with and what we need help for is greater than the time-bound pains and discomforts that we experience in this life. The, the things that we are experience are real to us. They're, they're serious things. God helps us in these things quite often, but they're not the greatest issue. These are time-bound pains and discomforts. And if you're a follower of Christ, they have, a, they have a shelf expiration date. They're going to end, and you won't experience them ever again in eternity. Our bodies hurt. Yes. Our spirits hurt from all of the sin people have committed against us. Yes. Our hearts ache for those who are no longer with us. Yes, we cry out in loneliness. Yes, but our ultimate problem is our alienation and rebellion against God. And Jesus Christ came to help and to bring many sons to glory. He came from heaven and earth to show the way, and from the earth to the cross, our debt to pay. Jesus Christ died in our place on the cross and was raised again from the dead three days later. And in this glorified, resurrected body, he appeared to his disciples and once to over 500 people at the same time. And he taught them for 40 days before ascending into heaven. All of this brings us into line right where our passage in Hebrews is wanting to bring us. The author of Hebrews is teaching us now that Jesus Christ is the God who helps and continues to help his people. Verses 14 to 15 of our passage say, Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, 
that is the devil, and deliver all those through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. God intended to help us in the most urgent and profound ways that we need help. And to do this, he took on human flesh since we are human flesh. And we, we saw this at length in last week's lesson. Because man sinned in the garden and man continues to sin, man owes the debt of death to God for his sin. It's man's debt to pay. And therefore, in order for us to have a Redeemer who could stand in our place, God the Son had to be made man, had to be made human in every respect, and to die for us. Since we are human, the Son of God became human. To free us from our slavery and bondage to sin, the Son of God became human in every respect, and he died a real, brutal, and painful death, a physical death. And through this death, through Christ's substitutionary, atoning death, Jesus destroyed the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. He freed us from slavery. Through fear of death, we were subjects to lifelong slavery, is what it says. Do you fear death? What part of death frightens you? Is it the fear of physical pain, that uh, you're worried that it'll just be a long suffering experience? Do you fear that it's the prospect of leaving your loved ones behind to mourn for you? These aren't irrational or sinful feelings for a Christian to have toward death. You know, I have a three-and-a-half-year-old son and a six-month-old daughter, so I, at this point, don't want to die and leave my children fatherless or leave their mother to raise them on her own. And I'm also, I also wouldn't want to die in a slow or painful way. King Jesus' defeat of death and the devil doesn't erase these unnerving aspects of our current experience. But what is the greatest fear of death? What is it that really terrifies somebody when they wake up at three in the morning and these, these, uh, these throes of existential dread and they realize that they are mortal and will leave this world at a definite date in the future? What is it that despite all of their bravado and their defiant words, even so-called atheists are afraid of when they contemplate death. I think Bill Shakespeare really was able to articulate this fear in his writings. And in his play Hamlet, we have the, the well-known soliloquy which begins with the infamous words, to be or not to be, that is the question. And the character Hamlet is contemplating suicide. And he's trying to decide whether it's better to live or to die, or excuse me, whether to live and to suffer what he calls the outrageous, uh, the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune. And by that he means just the bad stuff that happens all the time in life that you don't predict. Um, you know, the uh, person that backs into your car in a parking lot or the, the, the random painful medical diagnoses. Or he says, is it better to take your own life? So you just on one hand, you suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune. And on the other hand, you end it all. And he thinks that death is a peaceful release from his pains and sufferings of this life. And he starts to think death is just lying down to sleep and maybe even to have dreams. Aye, but there's the rub, he says. For in that sleep of death, what dreams may come when we've shuffled off this mortal coil must give us pause. What's he saying? The thought of dreaming while in sleep of death makes him ask, 
what exactly would these dreams be? And if he still has a consciousness after death, what will he be conscious of? And that thought terrifies him. And so he says that the dread of something after death, the undiscovered country from whose born no traveler returns, puzzles the will and makes us rather bear those ills we have than fly to others we know not of. The fear of what lies beyond the grave is frightening enough that he realizes people will choose the pain of this life over the unknown terrors beyond the grave, generally speaking. And so he concludes, conscience doth make cowards of us all. Now, what's, what's the point? You want to hear from God's word. You don't want a lesson in English literature. The point is, all people have sewn into the fabric of their being a fear of what lies beyond the grave. Ecclesiastes says God has put eternity into the hearts of men. There's a fearful expectation of judgment, and they are right to have it. For Hamlet, this fear of what lies beyond the grave prevented him from committing suicide in the play, despite all of the miseries that he was experiencing. For the human race, the fear of death causes us to do anything we can to distract ourselves from it, to delay it, or to reverse it. We spend fortunes on health food and the latest uh, diet remedies, uh, gym memberships, facelifts, monuments, achievements, mementos, and anything else under the sun we believe will give us longer life or immortality. We, uh, a few weeks ago, Pastor Jim mentioned Christopher Hitchens, and uh, Christopher Hitchens passed away. And a few years ago, I wrote an essay on, a, on my blog that I don't have anymore, so don't look for it. But I said, um, Christopher Hitchens has passed away. He's no longer an atheist. Because um, if he was right, he has no consciousness anymore. He's, he's, there's nothing left. He's, he just ceases to be an atheist. And if he was wrong, he's definitely not an atheist anymore. But I had this atheist respond to me and say, no, 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 no. Christopher Hitchens lives on in our thoughts and in our memories. That's not living. But even from this atheist, you still see this, 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 this desire. To, they can't live with, the, with their profession. We have to have this immortality. We can't abide by the thought of this uh, complete annihilation. We try everything we can to distract ourselves from it. There are hospitals in this country which don't call it death anymore. They call it negative patient outcome. That's like, <laughs> that's like a special military operation in Ukraine. Or, you know, with this Wagner rebellion, I saw some commentator on YouTube call it a special government review. <laughs> the human race is endlessly playing chess with death, attempting to delay the inevitable, just like the knight from Ingmar Bergman's film, The Seventh Seal. And the human race has a right to be afraid because their consciences accuse them. They feel their guilt and they know they aren't perfect. And unless a person is a true sociopath, even the most arrogant person you meet will admit that nobody's perfect. And this afflicts them, and as it should, because in Psalm 7, 12 to 13, it says, If a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. He has bent his bow. He has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. And Hebrews 9:27 says, It is appointed to a man to die once, and after that comes judgment. You see, Shakespeare was incorrect about something when he wrote that soliloquy for Hamlet. We know what comes after death. Judgment for our sins. A fierce expectation of judgment. And God says in his word that every careless word and every secret thing will be brought to light and judged. 
and we all know we are guilty of many things which violated our conscience, but we did it anyway. We knew it was wrong, and we did it anyway. This fear of the grave, or more specifically, the fear of what's beyond the grave, enslaves us, and we need help. We need escape from this slavery. But we have a God who helps. And Jesus Christ came in the flesh and died in our place and received the judgment that was meant for us. It, the judgment fell on him. And now he has liberated us from the fear of death because uh, of what lies beyond the grave for the follower of Jesus Christ isn't fear of judgment anymore, but joy in God's presence forever. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. So, our text says, Jesus defeated the devil and delivered us from lifelong slavery. In Hosea 13, 14, God says, I shall ransom them from the power of Sheol. I, I shall redeem them from death. O death, where are your plagues? O Sheol, where is your sting? The Apostle Paul also quotes this passage in 1 Corinthians 15 where he writes, when the perishable puts on the imperishable, when the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass what is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, but the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you see? We fear death because we've sinned and we know it. But if sin is defeated, which it has been through Jesus Christ's death and resurrection, then in repenting of our sin and trusting in him for our salvation and forgiveness, the sting of death is taken away. And this is why Paul can say, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I die, I get to be with my Lord. And if I live, I get to work for the Lord Jesus. It's win-win for Paul. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. And who has this victory? Well, the text says God gives us the victory through the Lord Jesus Christ. We have the victory through the Lord Jesus Christ. And therefore, we read in John 11, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. And it was shortly after that that the Lord Jesus raised her brother Lazarus from the dead. And Charles Spurgeon said uh, while preaching on this passage that Jesus Christ has trodden on the old serpent's head and to the Christian in the matter of death, the devil is completely destroyed. For he that believes in Christ shall never die. Death seemed to be all dark and evil like Satan himself, something into which he had put his most venomous sting. But now, to believers in Jesus, death is a messenger from our Father in heaven calling us home to him. Not a dark angel striking terror to our hearts, but one who is exceeding bright and fair, coming to bid us fly away to realms of light and love. And now, look at our passage again with these new eyes, verses 14 to 15. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those through fear of death 
we're subject to lifelong slavery. King Jesus has set us free, set us free from slavery. But the writer of Hebrews has more to say about this. Verses 16 and 17 say, For surely it's not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Jesus Christ doesn't help angels. He helps human beings. So he had to become human in every respect. To help humans, he became human. He became like his brothers. In his human body, Jesus Christ made propitiation for the sins of his people. And propitiation is a word that uh, it shows up quite a bit in Scripture, often enough. Um, in one of my Tuesday night classes, somebody asked, is there a, an easier word that you can use for propitiation? I said, no. But <laughs> Pastor Jim has been teaching, about, teaching us through the series in Romans, and he's brought it up a few times. So you should be somewhat familiar with it. It's a theological term for making atonement for sin by making an acceptable sacrifice. It propitiates an angry or aggrieved party. In Romans 3.25, in 1 John 2.2, and in 1 John 4.10, we see this word used to describe the death of Christ propitiating or appeasing God's wrath against sin. God is wrathful towards sin. He is angry towards sin, our sin. And Jesus Christ propitiates this wrath. He pays it. He is the atonement. And the Son of God had to be made human in order to make this propitiation and take away the fear and the sting of death for his people. Jesus paid our debt. Here, in verse 17, we're also introduced to another aspect of Christ becoming human and what that means for us. This is part of Jesus' role as Redeemer and Savior, which the author of the Hebrews is actually going to elaborate on for entire chapters later on in this book. We tend to place a lot of focus on Jesus' earthly ministry, on his death, on his resurrection and ascension, and rightly so. We should never forget those things. But I think so often we forget of what Christ is continuing to do. We think that he's gone, and he'll come back, but in the meantime, there's, there's, there's no contact. Maybe we can send him a letter or something, but we're not going to hear back. We forget about the things that Christ is still actively doing and actively doing on our behalf. In Hebrews, we'll talk a lot more about this later on in the book, but for verse 17, it says, Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. Why? So that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of his people. Now, in the opening verses of the book of Hebrews, we see Jesus as the one by whom God the Father now speaks to us, meaning Jesus is our prophet. And in chapter 2, verse 9, we see Jesus crowned with glory and honor, meaning Jesus is our king. And in verse 17, we see that Jesus is also our merciful and faithful high priest. And these positions or these roles are, are what theologians have called over the years the threefold office of Christ. Jesus Christ is our prophet, our king, and our priest. And in regard to the lyrics from Help by the Beatles, who do we now think is best able and most willing to help us? We need somebody, but not just anybody. So who? The Lord Jesus Christ. 
the eternal Son of God who became human in every respect to rescue us from slavery and the fear of death, who destroyed the devil and made propitiation on our behalf to God, who helps us, who partook of our nature, who suffered and who died for us, who offers to all people everywhere in the world the gospel of peace and the gift of eternal life, and who is the resurrection and the life. Jesus, our King. Jesus, our prophet. Jesus, our priest. Jesus of Nazareth, who loved us so, and he washed his disciples' feet. He even washed the foot of the one who would betray him. Jesus, who healed and who fed and who wept and who blessed. Jesus, who has suffered and was tempted in every way and knows what our suffering is like and knows how it feels. The Son of God, who's not removed, he's not remote, he's not unapproachable, but who entered into the human experience to share in our sufferings and give us eternal life. King Jesus, who is able to help those who are tempted, which is you and me. He can address our need. He is qualified to help. He is able to help. He's willing to help. He does help. Richard Phillips wrote, and with this I close, Jesus Christ, God's own Son, became like us to be a total Savior, sufficient for the whole range of our need. How hollow then ring the world's complaints against our God. People are saying all the time today, lamenting in this world of woe, where is God? Why doesn't he do something? Meanwhile, he has done everything. Indeed, more than ever we could ask or imagine. God has entered into our world. He has walked through the dust of this earth. He who is life, has wept before the grave. And he who is the bread of life has felt the aching of hunger in his belly. Is there anything more lively in all of Scripture than the scenes of Jesus supping with the weak and the weary, the sinners and the publicans? He has taken the thorns that afflict this sin-scarred world and woven them into a crown to be pressed upon his head. And he has stretched open his arms in love that the hands that wove creation might be nailed to a wooden cross. And then he rose from the dead, conquering all that would conquer us, setting us free to live in peace and joy before the face of God. All that God has done in the redeeming work of Jesus Christ was done not for angels, but for you. It was like you that he became, and it was for you that he died. It is with you that he sympathizes now, knowing well your struggle. He is able but are you willing? Amen. Our Father and our God, we thank you for the truths that we read about our Lord Jesus Christ. And the cry of all of our hearts is that we would be able to love you more appropriately to who you are. So I pray for that, Lord. I pray yet again that as we leave this place, we wouldn't just hit Monday morning forgetting about the things that your word has to teach us, but we would bear in mind that we have a Savior who suffered for us, who suffered with us, and who saved us and redeemed us, and that this would shape our outlook on life. As it is your nature to love and to work out of that love, I pray that we would have love and we would, we would operate out of that love nature as well. Let us be ambassadors to this community, Lord. Give us clean hands. Give us clean hearts. Let us not lift our hands to another. Let us exalt 
our glorious King Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.